is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Laura Ingalls Wilder is a name familiar to most Americans born and raised in the 20th century. Her Little House on the Prairie series of children's books, released from 1932 to 1943, were works of fiction based on her childhood in a settler and pioneer family in a time of rapid westward expansion and white settlement. The books were incredibly popular in their day, and when they were made into a well-loved television series in the 1970s and 1980s, they caught the imagination of a whole new generation of readers. Certainly, if you were a girl born in the second half of the 1900s in the U.S., you knew exactly who Ma, Pa, Mary, Carrie, and Laura were. What you might not have been as aware of as a reader of the books in your formative years was just how much environmental, agricultural, and gardening information and history you were receiving wrapped up in these engaging human stories. Marta McDowell is a historian and author. Her books include Emily Dickinson's Garden and Beatrix Potter's Gardening Life, as well as all the President's Gardens. Her most recent book is The World of Laura Ingalls Wilder, The Frontier Landscapes That Inspired the Little House Books, a historical and ecological exploration of a very specific time and place in American history. The book was published by Timber Press in 2017. On February 7th, Laura Ingalls Wilder would be 151. Marta joins us today via Skype from her home. Welcome, Marta. Hello, Jennifer. So it's really fun to have you back on. I believe you and I first spoke about a year and a half ago when we talked about all the president's gardens. And so it was really fun when I learned this new book of yours was coming out because I was born in 1965 and I am the middle daughter of three daughters. Having grown up in Colorado, we would drive back across the United States to the East Coast every summer to see family. Just driving across those landscapes, having read all of those books, and then as a slightly older child, having started to watch the television series, they really resonated with with me and with my sisters, and I think this whole generation. Tell us a little bit about I I was going to start with the landscapes, but tell us a little bit about why you agreed to do this book. Well, it was something I couldn't turn down. And I I will tell you, Jennifer, that in a way I sort of wanted to, which is weird because, you know, authors like to write books and they like to have them published. But my editor called basically the same week that I submitted the manuscript for all the president's gardens. So you have to imagine I had an empty desk for about a nanosecond, (laughs) right? Because not only did he say, well, you know, would you be interested in writing a book about Laura Ingalls Wilder to which my answer would have absolutely been yes He said, oh, and we need to get it out in 2017 because of her 150th birthday, which meant that I had one solid year less than, (laughs) you know, normally I like to take three years to research a book and 
you know, put it all together. So in this case, I had two and I was like reading proofs for one book while I was researching the next book. But mm-hmm. I'm glad I did because not only did I, like you, have that little bit of Laura inside of me, right? Because it was part of my growing up. It also fits so well with the book about the history of American gardening through the White House, Mm -hmm. because it was much of the same time period, right? You're talking 1867 to 1957, her life, 90 years, right smack in the middle of what I had just researched, but from a very different point of view, you know, a middle of the country point of view, as opposed to an East Coast point of view, uh, and a, you know, working class, you know, these were not, this was not the 1%. And frankly, when you talk about the presidents and their gardens at the White House, mostly you're talking about the upper classes. Yeah. So it was a very different look. So that's, how it came about and why I just couldn't say no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That kind of every man, every woman story is part of what resonated the little house stories with all of us at a certain at a certain level is that it could have been any of us. That's why it was so easy to kind of pretend you were them or pretend you were traveling with them, especially if you lived in the middle of the country. And I think you're you're right about this wonderful perspective that really captures this incredible moment in the in the United States and the history of the United States and the history of our natural history and how it changed we changed it and how we all now experience it in in hindsight. So Let's get a little bit more specific for listeners. The The book is entitled The Frontier Landscapes That Inspired the Little House Books. That is its subtitle. When, when we say that, when you write that, walk us through what exactly these frontier landscapes were. So the Ingalls and Wilder families back a few generations, had been New Englanders. And when the books start, uh, Charles Ingalls' pa is in Wisconsin, in western Wisconsin, in an area that's very heavily forested. And the first book is called Little House in the Big Woods. Um, So it starts out in the forest and almost in this fairy tale setting. Uh, So that's where it begins. And it's like so many of the places that the Ingalls family goes, it is in this final kind of tipping point where the natural world is about to change completely. And again, the Ingalls and Wilder families had a hand in that. They were that last big push west. So we start out in the woodland, uh, in this kind of fantastic woods that was considered, you know, by people from the East Coast, that this was as great a source of wealth as the gold fields in California. It was that important. Uh, Then they have a farm there. Then they move, again, always in hopes of something better. They decide to move to Indian Territory, which today is Kansas. 
So they make their way down in a covered wagon to this sort of rolling prairie. Uh, the landform is called, I learned, a cuesta, C-U-E-S-T-A, which is this sort of hump shape, which is left over from you know, geological eons past when that part of Kansas was covered by a great inland sea. So it's kind of this rolling prairie. There's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of streams there that comes into the story about the waterways and the trees that they can harvest out of the creek bottoms. Uh, but it doesn't work out. Uh, Indian Territory at that time was very, very much up in the air politically. You know, people in Washington were very much pushing for Indian removal, uh, which eventually happened. But there were treaties going back and forth and it was quite confusing. And then uh, Charles Ingalls, at least according to the story, gets evicted from land that he never really owned. So he was sort of squatting there. So they go back to Wisconsin stay there for a little bit, and then move yet again, this time to Minnesota, where they go right on the edge of a creek. So again, you have that kind of wetlands um, and a very beautiful open space in Minnesota. And you can imagine if you'd been farming in the woods that all that big open land would be really appealing. So things don't go well. They go then to Iowa, they go back to Minnesota, then they move yet again, this time to what now is South Dakota. And so kind of different parts of the prairie, slightly different again in each place. Uh, that swath of western Minnesota and eastern South Dakota, again, is full of wetlands and lakes left over from the glaciers, big bird migrations. Uh, and the Ingalls family does finally settle there. Um, and that is where Al Almanza Wilder comes into the story. Um, the, the Little House books have this one zag out for a book called Farmer Boy, which is actually the childhood of Almanzo. And so we get a little bit of New York State as well. One of the things that really struck me in reading your book which I didn't absorb a sense of when reading the whole series as a younger person, was how much they moved. While they seemed like this, you know, very stable family, and you can picture them in, in one place or, you know, they're different houses, but it didn't feel like that much moving. In reading the history of this, of, you know, the way you put it together for these landscapes, it was remarkable to me how much how much territory they covered in the period of their of their lives. Yes, I mean if if you just see a static map, you go, well, yes, that's a lot of places. But if you actually, you know, do draw, you know, follow the bouncing ball, it's like you're following something in a pinball machine, yeah. sort of bouncing all over the place. Um, and I think that was true not just of the Ingalls family. There were a lot of people who backtrailed, who either didn't make it or ran into trouble and had to back up or go back to family and start over again. So that phenomenon is, you know, sometimes I think we think that's something new where, you know, kids come home, well, you know, that happened then as well. Yeah. So the final place that they live when to Laura and Almanzo marry and start their own story and they settle at the Rocky Ridge location. 
Yes, but again, Laura and Almanzo do not have a straight line no. trajectory, right? So no. they go, they have this, you know, series of absolutely horrible events that happens to them after their marriage and kind of after the Little House series ended. Uh, they try Florida, and they actually live with his parents in Minnesota for a while. They try Florida for a year. They come back to Dismit, South Dakota, and then they move for the last time south to Missouri, to the Ozarks. So they settle in, in western Missouri, uh, not too far from the Kansas line, in the Ozarks. Also in a very, uh, it's not exactly mountainous because it's a plateau, but it has a, you know, it's a very up and down <laughs> Uh, sort of topography, if you will. So they go from flatland to something very different to sort of, uh, you know, she said, we're we're always farming at an angle, if you yeah, will. Yeah. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today we're speaking with author, historian, and gardener Marta McDowell about her most recent book, The World of Laura Ingalls Wilder, The Frontier Landscapes That Inspired the Little House Books. Marta has written a great deal about other writers and their relationships to their gardens and the natural world. One of the things that compelled her in her research on Laura Ingalls Wilder was how Laura's life encompassed that wildly changing time in our country and world between 1850 and 1950. So much happened and changed. And Wilder's stories, told from the perspective of a female voice and a working class family, reveal a great deal about each of those layers against a backdrop of epic American landscapes. We'll be back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. Happy mid-January. I find January to be a really good, often gray and rainy, snowy in the high country, time of year that's perfect for more reading in my days and evenings. Did you read The Little House on the Prairie books as a young person, or have them read to you maybe? I read every one of them as a girl growing up in Colorado, and I read them out loud to my daughters when they were growing up. We all have scenes we love the most, that have stayed with us. For me and my girls, the making of maple candy in the snow remains one of our favorites, as does the scene where they make a balloon out of a meat animal's internal organs. The books were very real in these ways, vivid scenes of a land and season-based life. Did you have favorite scenes? And had you heard of or, or maybe even read any of the Louise Erdrich Birch Bark House books? They're now on my list to read this winter. What's on your list? I'd love to know. Now, back to our conversation with Marta about the long ago, but still recognizable life and landscapes of these books and Laura Ingalls Wilder. Good winter reading and listening. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with Marta McDowell, author most recently of The World of Laura Ingalls Wilder, The Frontier Landscapes That Inspired the Little House Books. Published in 2017 by Timber Press, 
On February 7th, Laura Ingalls Wilder would be 151. This book maps Laura Ingalls Wilder's extensive plant, agricultural, and ecological experience and knowledge as illustrated in her writings. Welcome back. That gets to the incredible, which you capture brilliantly in the book, the incredible range of environments that they lived and worked in. If I had thought about it before, you know, the titles of our books that we're, we're talking about, On the Banks of Plum Creek, Little House on the Prairie, Little House in the Big Woods, they all give an indication of place. But I didn't think about that until I was reading your book and realized just how much natural history is incorporated into these stories. And the different environments of the prairie, the wetlands, the different watersheds that they were in, the different far past, you know, environmental histories of the glacial, you know, soil, because of, of course, all of that history is playing into if these people's lives are going to be successful or not, because they're farmers. That's right. Well, you know, just like a good garden, a good book has a lot of layers in it. And I think that was one of the great appeals of Wilder's writing is that she manages to layer in so much detail into these stories. She sort of, you know, quilts them in and you don't notice the little stitches, but they are there. Mm. So like you, Jennifer, when I was reading these as a kid, you know, that all of that stuff really passed me by. I mean, maybe I would have been able to recall the, I don't know, the grasshoppers or the crayfish right, in right. Plum Creek, but, you know, not much. And so going back to them with, you know, an adult eye, at least a nominal adult, <laughs> you know, I, that really came to life for me. Right. And so that was really fun as a new way to approach these books is to learn about a time that we'll never see again, right. not in the kind of way that she did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she was an adult by the time she was writing these books. So that was the other interesting layer for me to think about is, you know, she starts to write these in the late 20s, early 30s. They come, they start coming out in 1932. And she, which you document for us, she really relies on her, her daughter asking her sort of guiding questions, some details from family members, sisters, like reminding or, or, you know, describing what's going on for them in their places as she's writing them so that she can start to recall what, what lived in each place, when they bloomed, when they came to seed, all of these things. Yes. So these are books of memory. And I mean, I don't know this for a fact, but the, the, uh, one thing we can say factually is she started writing them after her mother died. Her father died first, her mother died. Then she is somehow driven to write down these stories. And she writes them down first as autobiography, as straight memoir, tries to get them published, can't. And then again, with the help of her daughter, shapes them into the series of books 
you know, that we'd call young adult Mm -hmm. fiction. She called them juveniles, um, which was, I mean, she kind of made a market for these, this kind of series books. Mm -hmm. Especially for that age group, because while there were other as women writers of this time in some of these places, you know, Willa Cathers, who comes to mind immediately, they didn't necessarily have this broad of a series and they didn't market it to this age group, which I thought was very interesting. Yes. I mean, it's a little younger than, you know, the Joe March Little Women Mm -hmm. audience, Uh, But it shares the fact that there is a strong female heroine that goes throughout. And yet we also have Almanzo. So the books also do have a lot of appeal to boys uh, as well as girls. But again, Wilder was, you have to imagine, a white-haired Wilder, right? She was late 50s, in her 60s when she's writing these. They are... You know, she's dredging up memories. She writes that, you know, she she wakes up in the middle of the night and remembers something like it's come to her in her dreams. And mm-hmm. she gets up and her little study is right next to their bedroom. And she has this little desk and she goes in there and writes it down. And so, uh, you know, I don't know. I think as I get older, my childhood memories get more vivid. You know, it's like they get more technicolor somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that brings me, so there are two threads that I really want to follow up with you. One is the process you followed to do this research. Walk us through what what you did. Did you go back and reread the entire series and take detailed notes on when plants were or when agricultural information was mentioned, plants were mentioned? How did you do this? So absolutely. I went back, you know, so there is a whole group there, the paperback edition of the Little House books on my shelf. And if you pulled out any one of them, you would think this woman has stock in post-it notes. because (laughs) They are like this little flurry of post-it flags, um, you know, and then I go through and transcribe and I make these very um, geeky spreadsheets of any time a plant is mentioned. Um, I have a giant kind of working document. So I work off of a big outline. The first place that I went to do research, surprisingly to me, was the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library in West Branch, Iowa, because that is where Wilder's papers are housed. Wow, why Uh, are they there? Well, her daughter and her only heir, right, uh, was a great admirer of Hoover. And so that's where it was decided the papers would go. And it really is great for researchers because it is part of the National Archives system, Mm -hmm. which means it's very accessible. The material that's housed there is in the public domain. So that is absolutely fantastic. Mm -hmm. So I spent a good amount of time there, uh, you know, with papers. Um, I did spend a little time marching around the landscape there because the Hoover Library uh, has a wonderful small restored prairie. So Mm -hmm. that was great. Then I started going to the home sites, starting with the one 
in South Dakota in February. It was part of the adventure and Mm -hmm. it made me, it was my little bit of the long winter moment. (laughs) Visiting the home sites was important, not just for the archival material that each one of them had, but also really to be in these places. Because quite frankly, until I started writing this book, I had never been to South Dakota. Mm-hmm. I had never been to Kansas. Uh, my only stop in Missouri had been St. Louis. You know, it's it, I needed to go there to see what the land was like today so that I could write about it. Yeah. This then brings me to something that seemed to happen for you. And, and I'm not sure at what point in your process you made this decision, but intermittently throughout the book, you take a moment aside from Laura's stories and your retelling of how it all came to be for her and these different places, and you interject personal notes on things that came up for you as a person in your time and place and your history with your family, and you kind of share that as a reflection of maybe what all readers experience when they they read a book or experience a writer who resonates with them. So it was a decision that was kind of made for me in more ways than one. Um, It started, I was writing the first chapter of the book, So again, I'm very boring. I tend to write from the beginning and write through to the end in order. And so the first book was about Wisconsin. And I was writing about the different kinds of trees and the different uses for the trees kind of through the season, because Mm -hmm. many of Wilder's books do take a kind of a year they have the arc of a year. Mm -hmm. So I had gotten to, it's autumn, it's Wisconsin, it's the big woods, what are they doing? Well, they're collecting nuts. And it just, this memory welled up inside of my father cracking black walnuts that he had gathered, which is something that he did every autumn. It was just part of my growing up. And he would crack them and my mother would make Christmas cookies out of the black walnuts. Mm. I was just, you know, I'm typing away my keyboard and I just typed it. So who is that? You know, what is that? Where does inspiration come from? Is it, you know, Apollo or some, you know, God? I don't know where it comes from. So that just happened. And so there it is on my screen, on the page. And uh, I'm thinking, okay, now what? I mean... It does sort of fit. I've never done anything like that before in, you know, in my writing. I write about the person I'm writing about. Uh, So I shipped it off to my editor saying, here's a sample chapter. You'll notice something slightly different about the end. (laughs) Uh, Let me know. And he wrote back. You know, I thought, oh, he'll say, "Mm, nice try. Forget it. He wrote back and said, yeah, I like it. Leave it in. Yeah. And then it was like, uh uh-oh, now I've got to do this for every chapter. And it didn't seem hard, though. They they come very naturally as as you're reading through the book. And that is the way they happened. I just would kind of go along and 
then something would come to me either from my growing up or from the actual research process of putting the book together. Mm-hmm. And they just happened. And some of them were harder than others because some of the memories were more difficult than others. But it, it's it's how the book came out. And so there it is. <laughs> and it was, for me, it was a you know, kind of a a beautiful device of a story within a story within a story because there's you writing the book about Laura's life and about her creating her books, which were all being done from memory and, you know, in hindsight. And so I I just, the layers of that were very, I don't, they, they really spoke to me very, very nicely that as readers, we bring ourselves into the story as well. Um, and there's something important about that if we're then going to take that story and learn from it, grow from it. I, I don't know, which I, I think is one of the elements of the Little House books. And then what you have just done with them, which is to point out some of their really rich layers that we can learn from, both historically and in hindsight, but as we are making decisions moving forward as gardening, ecological, traveling people. And I really enjoy weaving into my own garden beds plants that have connections. So I love to have plants that other people have given me from their gardens But I also have plants that speak to me because, you know, oh, well, Laura Ingalls Wilder grew this plant or knew it in the wild or this particular daffodil Emily Dickinson grew. You know, that Mm -hmm. to me is it it just brings another layer of meaning to my garden and the enjoyment of the garden. That reminds me of one of the quotes I uh, marked in the book where you write, American gardening is something of a smorgasbord, a story of migration, of exchange, and of transmission. And that is so well documented in the book and through your retelling of Laura's process. And I think it's true for, for most gardeners are, I know that have personal relationships with their spaces. It, their, their plants have stories and people and memories that go with them. I mean, you, you go back, I think that passage was talking about morning glories growing on the dugout yeah. in Minnesota. And so these morning glories, the domestic morning glories with the big flowers were being carried from Europe by these people who had, you know, they had to have all of their possessions in this tiny little trunk. And they made room for these seeds because those were things that would remind them of home. And I find that so poignant Mm -hmm. that, you know, that would be the thing, you know, if someone said we're moving and, you know, put the most important things that you're going to take with you, that you'd sneak in a few morning glory seeds. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place, 
We're speaking today with Marta McDowell, author of The World of Laura Ingalls Wilder, The Frontier Landscapes That Inspired the Little House Books. Marta spent a year traveling to the sites of Laura Ingalls Wilder's many homes and homesteads, and she created an annotated list of every plant, animal, and environmental reference in Wilder's Little House books. Through this pilgrimage, as Marta saw it, she experienced a lot of personal memories and reflections. This empathic response to and general accessibility of the stories in life of Laura Ingalls Wilder remains, I think, one of the great joys of her work. The layers of meaning wrapped up in the plants we carry with us, as well as those that have touched us and companioned us wherever we have lived, are powerful and hold, in many ways, our own human stories. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. Hey, it's me, Jennifer. It was really important to me in this conversation with Marta McDowell to get to some of the harder, more troubling aspects of the Laura Ingalls Wilder narrative and historical time period, the subtext on which these stories were possible. From where we sit now, the destruction we have wrought on our land and its native peoples are impossible to not see. And there's no reconciling the reality of some of the grave mistakes and moral failures of our cultural past. The point, for me anyway, thus becomes, what do we take from this narrative? How do we use it and learn from it in the hopes of not continuing to make similar mistakes? How do we make sure to not use stories like the Little House books we loved to hide in romanticism, but to grow ourselves ecologically and culturally? These are some of the lessons and questions our gardens and plants present to us. They are among the constants that connect us as gardeners and plant folk over time and space in some of the more challenging ways which I find deeply rewarding, challenging or not, these connections I make with you, gardeners of all histories and backgrounds. Our human impulse to garden is important. In it, we can find our humanity if we let it. This impulse is our shared history and our future at its brightest. If you and I haven't connected yet, I hope you'll follow the program on Instagram and Facebook and head to cultivatingplace.com and sign up for the monthly newsletter of seasonal thoughts, event announcements, and things like that. For me, the whole point of Cultivating Place is to have these conversations about these things we love and that connect us. Together, we gardeners and nature lovers make a difference for the better. Now, back to our conversation with Marta McDowell and the life and landscapes of Laura Ingalls Wilder. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back to hear more from Marta McDowell, author of The World of Laura Ingalls Wilder, The Frontier Landscapes That Inspired the Little House Books. Welcome back. And so then that gets to this annotated list of the plants that you walk us through. So you you walk us through ecosystems and 
uh, larger environments like prairie or plain or woodland forests. You also walk us through the specific plants and some of the stories behind them. You have a beautiful thorough list at the back of the book of every plant mentioned and which book it's mentioned in. So you don't necessarily go into every single one of those, but you go into a very good portion of them and talk about their history and what their meaning or use would have been. I think there are two different comments that I made note on of your observations. One was that a farmer boy could actually be a handbook for future farmers of America. The other comment you made was that the wilders really are prototypes for sustainable, small holding farmers or homesteaders or permaculture gardeners in this day and age? It was a happy discovery for me that when Laura and Al Manzo do settle on Rocky Ridge Farm and build it up from basically nothing. I mean, it was a farm. It had a shack that they lived in for a while. They had these seedling apple trees And they planted them out as a thousand tree apple orchard. They built a farmhouse. They scrimped and saved. But it was very much the kind of farming that people are talking about now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Almanzo, or we think Laura in Almanzo's voice writes, you know, I knew every tree that, that, uh, Bess, he called her Bess, and I knew every tree just from the description, you know, so I could say the one that leans to the west with the three branches, they would know which apple tree they were talking about. They, They did all sorts of soil amending. He used green manures. He never hunted the quails because he said the quails eat the bugs and the bugs spread the disease. I mean, it was all of the things we're talking about now, mm-hmm. there's nothing new. You know, we just have to kind of absorb and appreciate these lessons uh, and try to move forward from there. Yeah. And she was incredibly, which I'm sure is the result of a long life of experience, as well as being a careful, thoughtful writer at the at the writing portion of her life, she you note over and over again just how accurate she was in her descriptions of birds and bird songs, in her description of plant life and the phenology, the when they seeded, when they germinated, when they bloomed and fruited. She had a very solid knowledge of this part of life. And she wasn't a botanist, you know, she was a person who had always experienced nature, appreciated nature, experienced plants and, you know, animal life, sometimes the good, sometimes the bad. But she did carry it with her in a very vivid way Mm -hmm. that let her write it down on paper. And, uh, you know, that, that really is a gift. I mean, it's sort of a stretch, but I do think of her now as something of a nature writer Mm -hmm. in addition to be a children's writer. Yeah, and I'm sure it became more and more obvious to you as you were creating your annotated lists just 
how impressive the, the scope was, because it certainly became impressive to me as I was reading your documenting of it. You make a couple of notes when she goes off accuracy. You sort of imagine that she did this purposefully, that she you know, wanted something to be in bloom in a particular scene, even though seasonally it might not have been quite in bloom at that moment. Because these are fictional accounts. Mm -hmm. I mean, lest we forget, these are novels. And she did take license with some of the history as well, although she did try to be as accurate as she possibly could be. The whole aspect of her writing independently as a woman in the 1930s and 1940s, being successful, modeling this idea of and, and it wasn't exactly modeling because she worked very collaboratively with her daughter, Rose, as you document in the book, that in some ways they were kind of almost like editor and, and writer or something. But her independent success as a writing woman in the 1930s and 1940s, how unusual was this, Marta? Well, she actually started before that because in the teens – she was writing a lot of farm journalism. Right. Uh, she she wrote for newspapers, and she wrote in particular for a kind of regional publication called the Missouri Ruralist, which I have recently found out is still being published. And she wrote sort of lifestyle pieces, you know, things about my kitchen and my garden and my farm and my neighbors. Uh, but it was... You know, very competent writing. They're quite readable. They're all collected in a book about of, of these farm writings. And so she had really honed her skills in that venue. Mm -hmm. And I guess she stuck to topics that were generally the women's page. She wasn't way out of her bound, and yet she was doing work that wasn't the typical farm work at all, right. uh, being a writer. So here is a woman. She has graduated the eighth grade. She always read. She loved to read. And she always was very um, interested in self-improvement. And she did some things that were unusual for the time. Yeah, the description of her and Rose and another woman driving the car from the Ozarks to the West Coast and going over the, the Continental Divide in the Rockies. And there are some photos there of that. I was really, I, I loved Laura Ingalls Wilder even more. Oh, yeah. I mean, she never drove herself, but she loved to take car trips. Yeah. And uh, Almanzo did learn to drive, and they eventually had their own car. Um, you know, Rose, her daughter, was really uh, fairly famous back in the day. She was very well paid. She did a lot of magazine pieces, but she also wrote novels. Uh, and so Rose provided a lot of the kind of luxuries uh, along the way until her mother really got going with her own books. Besides being impressed with the scope of the natural history and the um, environmental 
details of where she was living that's included in these books. One of the things that came across poignantly but in a hard way was something he referred to a little bit earlier, which was these are stories of the kind of last white settler expansion into some of these environments, first the big woods and then the prairie. And I think it's important that there, I think it's important for me that as I was reading, I was, I, I was aware of how sad I was at what was going to be wrought on these places and the native peoples who lived there. So the environmental and cultural destruction that came about as a result of this westward expansion was really in my mind quite a bit of the time. Uh, and, and I think it was for you as well. And it's hard to know exactly how to reconcile that sitting where we are now and what to do with that, how to take it forward. How did you handle that, Marta? Well, one thing that helped me was a companion series of books by Louise Erdrich. And she wrote a series, I think there are four or five of them, targeted at the same age group. Uh, the first one is called The Birch Bark House. And like the Little House series, they have a female, young female protagonist who grows through the, you know, the scope of the series. But she is a girl of a tribe that lives in the northern Great Lakes. And you get the other side of the story because there is another side to the story. Uh, not only a human side, but also all of the plants and animals and these vast forests and prairies that now we rely on, you know, preserved spaces. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's the Joni Mitchell song that talks about the tree museums. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of sad, but, you know, you go to the prairies and you want to see the original prairies you essentially have to go to a grassland museum mm -hmm. um, where either by some fluke it was the soil was never broken or it's been restored to the extent possible. So uh, I do put that in, you know, I layer those things in because those were things that I sought out as I went on this mini pilgrimage to see these home sites to say, well, what are things that you can do along with that to see, try to see the world the way she did? So if you go to Baroque, Iowa, to see where the Ingalls family lived for a year, you can go and it's practically next door to Seed Savers Exchange, right. where you see, you know, all of these glorious heirloom fruits and vegetables and a lot of sort of wild trails that you can uh, follow around as well. I think we can only proceed from where we are today. We can't undo it, right. uh, but we can try to respond with what we know now. Uh, and I guess the, another thing that was touching to me was 
they did know then, you know, they knew that they were driving the animals away and, you know, that they couldn't find the wildflowers anymore that they remembered from their childhood. These people, you know, were just as smart as we are, maybe smarter, because I doubt I would have survived what they went through. Yeah. So, um, you know, they they were aware, but it's it's just that that was their life. That was their livelihood. Yeah. The end of the book includes some really great resources, information on how to take a, as you just mentioned, pilgrimage around these spots. You also include in this resource ideas for companion sites to visit, Seed Savers Exchange and the Baker's Creek site and the Tall Grass Prairie Preserve. You must have had fun putting that together. Oh, I did. You know, it's like, oh, look at this wonderful thing that I've always wanted to go see. I mean, (laughs) truly, uh, these wonderful organizations that are saving seeds and saving parts of the land, you know, these are on my life list. So it it was a wonderful um, just kind of side bonus. And so I thought, oh, I really want to share this. Uh, plus, there are other books that you can look at if you want to simply do the pilgrimage. I wanted to try to give some other ideas, plus give people ideas if they couldn't go to all of these places for whatever reason, you can still plant something that they planted. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think of it as kind of method writing, but I always try to plant some of the things. I grew, um, oh, these little ground cherries which are like a little tomatillo relative. Mm-hmm. And it was so much fun to grow them. They're easy to grow. And then I, you know, I picked them and then it's like, now what do I do with all these things? So I made ground cherry preserves and they're really good. <laughs> and you do have a wonderful list of all of the plants that she mentioned so that you can create your own kind of pioneer garden or Laura Ingalls Wilder garden even if it's just a few of the plants. So besides the wild cherries, what else have you included in your home garden that speaks to you of Laura and her journey? Oh, particularly sweet potatoes. So I did grow, there's a passage in Little House on the Prairie where Ma holds back one sweet potato that one of their friends has brought some sweet potatoes in his pockets for their Christmas dinner And she holds one back and says, you know, she's going to plant out these sweet potatoes next year from this one. And I thought, can you really do that? And so I had a whole project. The whole winter I was growing these sweet potatoes on my windowsill. And then I potted them up and planted them out. And they really are vigorous. So at least in New Jersey, I got quite the sweet potato crop. (laughs) Um, I added wild irises. So she calls them blue flags and they show up in several books. And so I, uh, I ordered some from Prairie Moon, which is this wonderful, you know, sort of online native plant specialist. And I ordered the one that is native to at least parts of New Jersey. And so it's growing very nicely in my garden, uh, although it's uh, not much like its native habitat because I don't have a natural wetland in my garden, but it seems to have adapted nicely. Good, good. Is there anything else you would like to add? 
Well, I think that you can think of the Little House books as one way to engage children in the natural world and in gardening. Mm -hmm. So if you use the books, if the children that you are in touch with like the books, you can do spin-off projects that are really fun. I mean, there really is nothing like pulling a radish out of the ground. It's like a miracle. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's important. But, you know, as Wilder wrote, it's not just the children. The voices of nature don't speak quite so loudly to us as we get older, but it's because we've stopped listening. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, just anything to kind of connect with the outdoors in a time when we have a lot of distractions. Yeah. I think that's really important. I think it is too. And I think that um, your book really brings out a deeper, richer side of the Little House books that's there. But especially as an adult, I think you wouldn't go back and look for it. And so your book is a great gift on that level. That particularly re-engages an adult mind, which, as you say, might have stopped listening. Thank you for being a guest today, Marta. It was a pleasure to speak with you. It was my pleasure, Jennifer. And thank you for your very perceptive questions. It's a wonderful way to start out the year. Marta McDowell is a historian and author. Her books include Emily Dickinson's Gardens and Beatrix Potter's Gardening Life, as well as All the President's Gardens. Her most recent book is The World of Laura Ingalls Wilder, The Frontier Landscapes That Inspired the Little House Books, a historical and ecological exploration of a very specific time and place in American history. The book was published by Timber Press in 2017. On February 7th, Laura Ingalls Wilder would be 151. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Thank you for listening. To see photos illustrating my conversation today with Marta McDowell about the lasting horticultural and environmental legacy of Laura Ingalls Wilder and her Little House book series, visit cultivatingplace.com. While you're there, make sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode. Even better, if you enjoyed this program, please share it with others. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. The program is made possible in part by the Stanley Smith Horticultural Trust. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our communications coordinator is Casey Gardner. Original theme music by Matt Schiltz. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.